Hello and welcome to the DebtWire Middle Market Podcast. I'm Tanvi Acharya, reporter with DebtWire Middle Market, and with me is Samantha Gleit, Senior Associate at King & Spalding. Samantha specializes in finance and lending transactions with a focus on private equity and investment funds, debt capital markets, healthcare finance, and insolvency restructuring. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So um, after retail, healthcare has been the most troubled sector in the recent past, with ongoing distress in skilled nursing facilities, small hospital systems, and now the pharmaceutical space. To start off, I wanted to talk about the latter first. We've seen multiple pharma bankruptcy filings this year, and there are more coming up. What is driving this trend? Why are we seeing so many, uh, so many of these companies in distress? Sure. So I think there are a few reasons that we've seen an uptick in distress in the pharmaceutical industry. And I think the primary reason is related to the ongoing opioid crisis, which has been in the news a lot and garnering a lot of public attention. But you see manufacturers of these opioids running into a lot of lawsuits now from government agencies as well as private lawsuits, which are creating mounting liabilities and unknown amounts um, for anyone who has made OxyContin or fentanyl or these drugs that are now being attributed for mass overdose deaths across the country. Um, And you see a lot of consumer concern on tightening the regulations uh, and making sure that these drugs aren't as readily available to the public and tightening the restraints on making them publicly available in general. So what you're seeing is pharmaceutical companies having to react to this new level of scrutiny and this mass level of lawsuits being instigated against them rather quickly. So suddenly now these companies have mounting liabilities and unknown amounts um, in in many cases across the country in various jurisdictions, which creates a huge legal cost um, that's potentially ongoing for an undetermined amount of time and suddenly creates a new financial burden for each of these companies that's sort of out of whack um, with what we were seeing in the past. So that within itself has created a new change in the healthcare industry with respect to all pharmaceutical companies that are producing these sort of opioids versus um, a lot of other manufacturers which have shifted away from this model um, a lot in response to this new attention but are exploring other options um, such as the cannabis or natural medicinal options just to not be a part of this stigma. So, um, you know, whether you're a large pharmaceutical company or a smaller one, your ability to weather this storm um, may be different. So I think we will continue to see a lot of the bigger companies go ahead and file for bankruptcy in an effort to come to a global resolution of how to handle this ongoing liability. And that's something that everyone will be watching closely to sort of see what we can expect um, and how this will continue to affect the pharmaceutical market. So I think the the opioid, the opioid issue is is one of the biggest issues that is facing that market today. In addition, you also have changes in regulation to Medicare and Medicaid, which is affecting how these companies are able to get cash. And uh, some of the proposed regulations will create longer time periods uh, for the companies to get reimbursement. So that creates some uncertainty with the cash flow, um, which can create issues on the balance sheet um, or liquidity problems for a lot of these companies as well. Um, lastly, one other major 
restriction on this industry. One other major point that's been affecting the pharmaceutical industry is the increased initiative on pricing and transparency. So there's a lot of focus on consumer protection and making consumers aware of what the pricing on various drugs is and will be, and we'll see continued um, increase in that transparency, both in TV ads and um, in drugstores and pricing in general, that will restrict these companies from getting a huge upside on their pricing for new products. So I think that will also continue to put pressure on the industry as a whole and create a little bit more of a distress situation than we've seen in the past. Got it. Um, Does the increase in uh, bankruptcy filings also have something to do with the fact that um, there are pharmaceutical companies now that have debt uh, versus a few years ago where, you know, they didn't carry any debt on their balance sheet? Absolutely. So I think we have a sort of chicken in the egg problem in some respect here because what the companies have been doing is, uh, generally speaking, they want to incur this debt so that they have the funds that they need to pursue additional R&D and to pursue new drugs and to come out with the next best thing. So certain companies had incurred additional debt to be able to pursue more aggressive R&D with new drugs or to just expand their development efforts. But the downside is once you have debt on the books, you have more restrictions with what you can do in a downside scenario. So for example, these companies now that have taken on debt a few years ago and now have an unforeseen liquidity issue will be in a much tighter spot and have to go essentially ask permission from their lenders to the extent that they aren't able to make anticipated payments or if they have a decrease in cash flow, whether it's because of a Medicare or Medicaid regulation change or because of a lawsuit, um, rather than another company that doesn't have debt on their books and has the flexibility to, for example, shut down a location that's you know not profitable, um, a company that has debt on their books and wants to either get rid of a product line that is no longer useful um, or make any kind of significant business changes will have to do that hand-in-hand with their lender as essentially a partner um, versus a company that wouldn't have those restrictions had they not taken on the debt earlier on. Got it. That makes sense. One of the names that filed for Chapter 11 recently was Insist Therapeutics. Can you break down the factors that led to its filing and tell us a bit more on what's going on in its bankruptcy process right now? Sure, absolutely. So with INSYS, what we saw was something that's starting to become sort of commonplace in the market for opioid producers, but we had an an onset of litigation and essentially uh, what happened in INSYS is you had higher level management ultimately being convicted of racketeering with respect to kickbacks for um, physicians that were prescribing various opioids. So that led to a vast amount of litigation, which ultimately led to a large settlement that was agreed between the parties um, in excess of $200 million. And almost immediately after that agreement was entered into, the company had to file for bankruptcy. So not uncommon in that sense that when you see these huge litigation awards or agreements, it will often put a company into a situation where they're not able to make that payment and are forced into bankruptcy to get some relief. Um, So that's what started out in incest, but what we have going on now is actually going to be a really interesting issue and somewhat determinative of what will happen on a go-forward basis in the industry 
because we have the judge looking at whether they can use the automatic stay to halt the pending lawsuits from other cities and states. So where we have attorney generals across the country that have instituted these lawsuits against incest, the question is whether the court can halt those where they are so that you can come to a final global resolution as part of the bankruptcy process or whether the exception for government pursuit will allow those suits to continue in place and not be subject to the automatic stay. Most people view this as being largely determinative of how other large pharmaceutical companies will handle the ongoing opioid litigation. So if INSYS is successful in halting the pending lawsuits from other government agencies, a lot of people expect that Purdue will follow suit and essentially follow bankruptcy shortly after to use the same mechanism to ultimately have a global resolution to their ongoing litigation. Um, So whether or not the company is really truly able to reorganize and come up to a final solution as to how to deal with all these unknown claims will affect whether other large companies essentially follow suit and take that same approach as well. So INSYS would basically be the example for them. I think it will it will create a line of case law um, similar to what we've seen in prior years where we had asbestos litigation or you had, um, you know, any kind of large mass tort litigation. Um, they're actually relying on an argument that was made in the Takata case where you had the faulty airbags. Um, but in that case, they, they were ultimately able to prevent Um, certain government litigation from proceeding under a similar theory. And that's the same argument that the company is trying to make here, which is that they will not be able to effectively reorganize absent some kind of global resolution with how to deal with these ongoing claims. Um, Are we seeing a difference in how lenders um, are approaching uh, deals in the healthcare space overall compared to how it was, say, five years ago? given all these changes? Absolutely. I think you're going to see a big change in the lending market with respect to healthcare companies today, and I think that will likely continue for the next few years. And the main reason for that is the various reasons we've already discussed as to why the industry is in distress with the opioid litigation and changing regulations. I think lenders are going to continue to view this as a risky space. Um, It's risky because between litigation and changing regulations, there's a lot of possibility for these companies to have um, a lot of volatility in their cash flow. So what that does is it creates risk for the lenders, um, which will ultimately lead them to give money on much tighter terms where they feel protected in a downside scenario. So the consequence of that is that a company doesn't have the freedom it would otherwise have to react in a downside scenario because essentially um, if you take that money and you're able to get that money, um, you're really subject to what the lender wants to do to protect its value, which may not be in line with what the company views as the best business decision. So lenders are going to continue to be really cautious in this space, um, especially given the you know change in reimbursement regulation that's expected to continue over the next year or so. Um, that's going to change significantly the amount of time that passes between when a claim is made and when a company is able to actually get that reimbursement. So as long as that's 
in flux and changing. I think it's going to be really difficult for these companies to know exactly how that will affect their balance sheet, and then consequently for a lender to know how that's going to affect the value of their loan. So given all these uncertainties in the market, lenders are not going to be willing to give company um, a pharmaceutical company the flexibility that they may have been able to get a few years ago before they had all of this increased public scrutiny and, of course, you know, the litigation risk as well. So the company will therefore have very little negotiating leverage, particularly if they have debt on their books in a downside scenario um, because it can be difficult to find alternative financing um, And once you have a lot of debt on your books, you have somewhat of a cash drain that may not allow you to account for new litigation or a product that's not as successful as a company had hoped it would be, and certainly takes away the ability to invest in new R&D, which is going to be integral for future success. So lenders are really focused now on what's up and coming in the pipeline, and they're really looking at companies that have new and novel products versus companies that are offering something comparative to what exists on the market. So in order to be successful and attractive to these lenders, uh, the pharmaceutical companies have to really be willing to invest in R&D in a way that the lenders believe will be successful. And it can be really challenging in a market that's this distressed to get the funds necessary for the research and development to then therefore be attractive to these lenders, which is why I sort of describe it as a chicken and the egg problem. Because if you don't have the cash you need to invest in the R&D, you can become somewhat stuck and then be very vulnerable in, in, in a downside scenario. Got it. And now switching over to other struggling areas within healthcare, what are some other pockets uh, within the industry that you're seeing that um, aren't doing well, aside from skilled nursing, obviously? Sure. So I think the medical service business as a whole is likely to see a lot of downside. And part of that is because of the changing nature of the industry as a whole. So one example would be to look at hospitals in general. Um, But hospitals across our country, right, are not only in major cities, but of course they're everywhere. And a lot of these hospitals were built uh, many years ago, many of them after World War II, right, where you had a much higher level of volume of patient care needed at that time. So you saw many more patients um, staying overnight in the hospital and for longer periods of time. So With that infrastructure, what you're left with today is a lot of unused space and a lot of extra labor costs and a lot of staff um, that perhaps is not necessary today in the way that it was at the time these hospitals were set up. So to the extent the hospital is not able to react quickly and, um, you know, get a better smaller location or change staffing needs and also adjust to ongoing regulatory changes, that's going to continue to be a problem, particularly in rural areas where you have generally decreasing populations and less people around in general than you did in many cases when these hospitals were built. So you have lower um, populations in general that are that this hospital is servicing to begin with, and you also have lower foot traffic. So the hospitals now have much higher overhead costs and much lower cash flow. So I think we'll continue to see an issue with all 
um, hospital and really home-based medical services. Again, you have all this technology that's coming into place where now a patient has the choice of not only going to a hospital, but depending on what's going on, you could download an app and potentially speak directly to a doctor who can give you a prescription in a matter of minutes over your phone. So as technology continues to develop in that respect, many of the aging infrastructure um, in the hospitals and the home healthcare business as a whole will continue to um, become obsolete. And these companies, hospitals, caregivers will all need to adjust and to figure out how they can either spend the funding to adapt to a sort of more innovative approach or ultimately will be forced to shut down. Um, so it's sort of a matter of figuring out how they can react to the technological advances and the general geographical changes that have taken place to the industry as a whole. And those that are able to adjust and are able to make changes um, and to find any extra liquidity to spend on technological advances um, will most likely be the most successful, but those that are already in a distressed situation or stressed for cash will will be likely to fail in this economy, unfortunately, um, absent any kind of other extraordinary relief. Are there any regulations coming up uh, that might have significant impact in the industry? Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the ones that we already talked about briefly, but is the continued reform to CMS and Medicare and Medicaid, um, which is all ongoing because this uncertainty in the market, um, particularly with respect to how it will affect cash flow, is going to make it extremely difficult for companies to obtain financing and investors because that uncertainty is scary to someone who wants to put money into a company. And a lot of investors may not be interested in investing in a model that is more risk-based and subject to unknown adjustments at um, unknown timing intervals and in a way that they know the company they're investing in is not accustomed to because this is new to everybody. So that alone can make certain areas of the healthcare industry um, subject to more liquidity challenges simply because it will be harder for them to access cash in the way that some of their counterparts um, are able to. So I think that will create an overall liquidity challenge just because it will create a lot of unknown um, liquidity factors that will be viewed as by lenders as risky. Um, so anytime you have a change to the regulatory scheme in a, in a healthcare industry, you have a substantial amount of uncertainty that will affect companies' ability to get cash and get access to cash, um, which will be a key determining factor to see how the industry shapes up you know, in the next few years. I think particularly smaller businesses um, will have more trouble because they won't have the ability to implement new systems that can compete and efficiently comply with these new regulations. So, um, you know, I think there will inevitably be new accounting programs, new um, managerial programs and things available to assist with these things that will ultimately help um, weather the storm and, and it will ultimately subside, but there will definitely be you know, presumably a five-year period where companies are still learning how to adjust to these regulations, understanding what they mean, understanding how it will affect their balance sheet, and, and sort of figuring out the best way to deal with that. Got it. Um, and what about uh, maybe the role where you have to disclose 
drug prices um, in TV ads, what impact do you uh, foresee that having? So I think the the focus on on consumer protection in today's sort of political arena is going to continue to limit the upside, so to speak, for, for these companies because it's going to increase the public scrutiny on pricing, right? And once you have television commercials that point out um, how excessive the cost can be, it's going to put more pressure on the producers to limit that cost, right? So basically, you're limiting the potential upside um, by by sort of curbing what's been excessive costs for these companies, which gives them the cash flow that you know they need. So I think that will continue to add another challenge. Um, as long as there's a continued push for pricing transparency, I, I think it will be very difficult for the pharmaceutical companies to find new ways to bring in that extra cash flow. Got it. And lastly, given all these changes taking place, what's your outlook uh, for the next few years? What are you expecting to happen? So. I think over the next few years, we're going to continue to see financial distress in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, in addition to the increased public scrutiny on pricing, there is also pressure from generic brands, um, false claims lawsuits, key TAM actions, um, similar to what happened in incest. So as long as we're in this sort of um, focused arena where there's a lot of consumer protection, I, I think a lot of those risks will continue and they will require these pharmaceutical businesses to sort of reshape their model and reshape how they communicate with their customers. Um, so the companies that are best able to reshape themselves will probably be the most likely to succeed. Um, and separately, I think a key part of succeeding in this um, economy for pharmaceutical companies is going to be based on their ability to obtain new money. So you will see a lot of these companies um, looking for loans and needing cash um, more than you have in the prior years. And I think lenders' appetite to provide this new money and um, create a new market for what these loans will look like will greatly determine um, whether the companies are able to get the funding they need and effectively invest in R&D. Um, most likely in alternative medicine, I think we'll see a big uptick in that. And I think we will continue to see people shy away from the opioid market um, and try to sort of divorce themselves from any stigma that has now come into play, especially at these larger companies um, where they have become somewhat tainted for their perceived role in this crisis. Um, so I think companies that are able to get access to cash and are able to adapt quickly um, will be the most likely to succeed. But that being said, I think generally speaking, people don't expect to see um, a lot of profit in, in the pharma world. Um, there's a lot of focus on the excessive drug pricing, and politicians are now focused on the consumer base, which is expected to further dampen sales. Um, and I think that that limits the ability of these companies to invest in additional R&D. So it will be extremely challenging to 
progress in this market unless you have the access to cash that you need to um, ultimately invest in research and development that is successful and leads to a new drug. So I think it will continue to be a risky market um, and, and we may not see an uptick for at least another few years. All right, great. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me.